You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to this special bonus session of Turning to the Mystics. I'm here with Jim to help launch his new book, The Healing Path, A Memoir and an Invitation. Welcome, Jim, and congratulations on this stunningly beautiful memoir. Thank you very much. I'm so pleased uh, that it's going to go out there to share with people. So we wanted everyone who listens to this podcast to get a special taste of your book. And so... Uh, you're going to read the entire introduction, and then we'll have a dialogue about the book. Okay, introduction. These reflections mark out a path, a way of life, in which we as human beings may be healed from all that hinders us from experiencing the steady, strong currents of divinity that flow on and on in the bittersweet alchemy of our lives. The surprising thing is that the intimate healing spirituality brings into our lives is hidden in the muck and the mire of the very things about ourselves we wish weren't true. The secret opening through which we pass into wholeness is hidden in the center of those wounds we are most afraid to approach. The door that grants access to boundless fulfillment is hidden in the unfinished business of our lives the places where we do not want to feel vulnerable, the things we tend not to sit with or listen to, the sometimes sad, sometimes tender, sometimes disarmingly simple, sometimes joyful things that make up the intimate substance of who we really are and are called to be. As I write this introduction, I'm immersed in these intimate depths, sitting next to my beloved wife, Maureen, as she lies here dying in the final stages of Alzheimer's. Even though she is unconscious and cannot open her eyes to look at me, I believe she can hear me as I speak from my heart in whispered words. Just now I told her that the ways of unbearable pain and crying that from time to time overtake me seem to soften at least a little as I learned to be more accepting of the immensity and mystery of her death. After all, immensity and mystery have woven our years together from the very start. The slowness with which she is gently fading away from me seems continuous with the slow setting of the sun out over the ocean, which is just beyond this darkening room where Maureen and I lived and shared so much over the past 30 years. I just told her that my suffering and trying to imagine life without her is eased in sensing that her soul is already beginning to pass over into God, leaving but a long vapor trail of herself in which she is still barely tethered to her body. Over the years, Marina and I would often share insights that came to us in our morning sitting here together in what we call our monastic silence. From time to time, she might share a passage from one of her favorite writings, perhaps an essay on Thomas Merton's disputed questions titled A Philosophy of Solitude, or that lucid little commentary on Meister Eckhart, The Way of Paradox. I, in turn, might share a passage from the text of a mystic in which I was immersed at the time. Then we would return to our shared silent reading. It was such a sweet and subtle way to be so inexplicably one with each other in the presence of God. I suppose that as I'm now sitting here saying these things to her, knowing in my heart that she's listening from a depth of presence that I can scarcely imagine. I suppose too that I'm sharing this with you as a way of inviting you to join us in these words, which are becoming our point of entry into the healing path this book explores. I just now shared with Maureen a memory that I've shared with her many times over our years together. The memory is about how deeply affected I was 
by something Thomas Merton said to us novices not long after I had entered the cloistered Trappist Monastery of the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky. Merton, who was master of novices, was speaking to us about an old lay brother who had just died. He encouraged us to realize that when we die, we do not go anywhere. We do not orbit the earth a few times and take off for God in some far-off celestial realm. For as scripture tells us, in God we live and move and have our being. All the angels, along with all the blessed who have crossed over into God, are here with us in the vast interiority of God, in whom we subsist as light subsists in flame. Finally, we tend not to see the deathless mystery of ourselves, of others, and of all things that alone is ultimately real. Hence the fear and confusion in which we lose our way in this life. It is in this traumatized incapacity to abide in our all-pervasive oneness that we act out the traumatizing things we do to ourselves, to others, and to the earth that sustains us all. Thus, on the journey toward experiential self-knowledge, our prayer becomes, Lord, that I might see you in this and in each passing moment of my life. As I write these words, I know that the depth of presence and love they express is all-encompassing, vast, and true. But here's the painful, intimate thing. The density and intensity of the dread I feel in not knowing how I'm going to be able to survive without Maureen closes off my ability to experience the consoling truths these words embody. In moments like this, I've come to understand God as a presence that protects us from nothing, even as we are unexplainably sustained in all things. For several months now, I have been stuck in not knowing how to begin the introduction to these reflections on the spirituality of healing. I had no way of knowing that I would begin in this way, sitting next to Maureen as she lay dying. But now it seems providentially appropriate that I begin by including you in this intimate exchange among Maureen, God, and myself. This is so because for the past 30 years, Maureen and I have been aware of how deeply our relationship with each other has included our relationships with the men and women who have come to us for psychotherapy and spiritual direction. In endlessly varied ways, our interactions with each other as husband and wife and with those coming to us for help have helped us to find our own way along the healing path. And so I'm sharing these reflections in concert with my long-standing resonance with Maureen, in the hope that what I'm sharing with you here will help you to find your own way to the mysterious realms in which sorrow and joy merge with God's presence, carrying you forward into all your unknown tomorrows. Of course, attempting to communicate such delicate matters in a book is not the same as a face-to-face -face encounter in which you could share your experiences and ask questions and share your own insights with me. But being with one another in the pages of this book has the advantage of allowing you to read these words in the same attentive manner in which I'm writing them. Insofar as this occurs, I hope and trust that you might find here words of reassurance and guidance in your ongoing healing journey. Know that the kind of things I have been saying to Maureen embody the spiritual worldview of contemplative Christianity in which I was immersed in the nearly six years I lived in the monastery. During those years, it was my good fortune to have Thomas Merton as my guide in the gentle art of contemplative living. From him, I discovered that the mystical foundations of healing that contemplative living brings into our lives consists of learning how to seek, find, and give ourselves to God, who is wholly given to us in each passing moment of our lives. When I left the monastery, I began to lead weekend contemplative retreats in the United States and Canada. I spoke from the depths of my heart in an attempt to share with those present 
as I will be sharing with you here, that we do not have to live in a monastery to find our way into deep healing and liberation that monastic life nurtures and protects. For this contemplative wisdom is present and hidden in the recesses of our own bodies, minds, and hearts, waiting to be recognized, cultivated, and shared with others day by day. Note too, the Walla'i will be turning primarily to passages in the writings of Thomas Merton and related sources in the mystical lineage of my own Christian tradition. I will also be drawing on the timeless wisdom that is present in the contemplative traditions of all the world's great religions and that can be found as well in certain poets, artists, philosophers, and those who serve the poor. And in a broader, more pervasive ways, the healing wisdom that we are attempting to explore is found in the souls of men and women too numerous to mention, who seek to live in obediential fidelity to the unseen light that sustains and guides them amid their own circumstances. And I should add as well that this timeless healing wisdom is present to some degree in you, as evidenced by the very fact you are drawn to read a book such as this. The same light that shines out from the world's wisdom traditions also illumines the path that has led in this very moment to our encounter in these reflections. To clarify what I mean, I invite you to look back on your life through all its twists and turns and discern how has it come to pass that you have arrived at this point at which you are drawn to recognize and care about the subtle interior dimensions of healing that we are exploring together in these reflections. Seeing our life in this way allows us to appreciate how mysteriously we have been led, perhaps to many setbacks and confusing moments along a providential path not of our own making. To help you see your own life from this luminous perspective, I will lead the way by offering you in these reflections a kind of teaching memoir in which I will trace out the lessons I have learned in my ongoing efforts to find my own way along the healing path. I will begin with my experience of being repeatedly traumatized in my childhood and adolescence. I will share how my trauma was the opening through which God accessed me, sustaining me and letting me know I was not alone in the midst of my difficulties. I will share how these grace visitations in the midst of my ongoing trauma led me upon graduating from high school to enter the monastery where I was radicalized and transformed forever in God's sustaining mercy. I will share how further, the further trauma I experienced in the monastery sent me back out into the world where I continued along a winding path that eventually prompted me to be in leading cont the contemplative retreats. It was on that path that I met Maureen and thereafter began our life together, which has led me up to this very moment. As I share my journey in this way, I'll also be suggesting ways you can look back at your own life in the same reflective manner, noting the lessons of healing and transformation that you have learned along the way. I can move closer to the formative energies that led directly to the writing of this book by sharing with you a long-standing pattern that began to emerge in my life with Maureen. Every other Friday, Maureen would drive me to the airport where I would fly out to lead a silent contemplative retreat, most often at a Catholic retreat house in the United States or Canada. I felt that those who came to these retreats, having read the description and knowing that the retreat would be conducted in silence, were drawn in part by this knowledge. Those who came knew that the meals would be eaten in silence and that everyone would be encouraged to maintain a spirit of silence throughout the weekend. They knew that there would be 20 minute sessions of shared silent meditation and prayer before each conference. They also knew that I would be sharing insights from the writings of Thomas Merton, St. Teresa of Avila, Meister Eckhart, as well as other mystics and spiritual teachers. All of these things had drawn their interest, but more succinctly still, I sensed that they were drawn to attend the retreats 
by unconsummated longings that they did not understand, for a union with God they did not understand, but which they knew was real and true because they had already begun to be graced with moments in which they were fleetingly tasting that union, present yet hidden in each passing moment of their lives. Then on Sunday at noon, I would leave the communal silence and serenity of the retreat to fly back to Los Angeles, where on Monday morning, Maureen and I would go to our two-office suite where we would sit with the men and women who were coming to us for psychotherapy. Many of those coming were trauma survivors who wanted their spirituality to be a resource in their therapy. When they came in to see us, they would not simply tell us about their trauma, they would show it to us, allowing us to see their trauma in their faces and in their eyes as they spoke. And we could feel in our own bodies the places that corresponded to the trauma that had staked its claim onto their life. What most surprised me as I went back and forth between these two opposite realms of trauma and transcendence, was that many of those coming to the retreats and coming to therapy were essentially the same people, and I was one of them. For I was a contemplative seeker going through my own therapy for the long-term internalized effects of the trauma I had endured in my childhood and adolescence. And I was a traumatized person who tasted traces of deep healing and liberation welling up from my wounded preciousness in the presence of God. A good number of the insights and suggested guidelines for healing offered in these reflections gravitate around the ways in which each of us is a unique addition of the universal story of being a human being. And among the themes or plot lines that run through our lives are the endlessly varied ways in which we seek to be healed from all that hinders us along the risky and transformative paths in which birth and death, sorrow and endless liberation are ribbon throughout our days. As I move toward bringing this introduction to a close, I encourage you to be patient with me, for I am but a 76-year-old man hoping to pass on a few things that might help you before I disappear. I encourage you as well to be patient with yourself, for patience ripens into humility, itself an opening into the healing path we are attempting to explore. As a way to bring this introduction to a close, I will share with you a story that I hope will help orientate you to the intimate nature of the spiritual dimensions of healing that we are now beginning to explore. This story was told to me some years ago by Sister Mary Luke Tobin, who was mother superior of the Sisters of Loretto and a longtime friend of Thomas Merton. The story is taken from the tradition of the Desert Fathers and Mothers. In the first centuries of the church, these men and women went out into the desert to undergo an interior martyrdom of dying to all that hindered them from experiencing the mystical dimensions of the promises of Christ. Men and women living in the surrounding villages would follow these solitary seekers out into the desert and asked to receive from them a word. By that they meant a message in the hearing of which their hearts would be awakened to a deeper realization of God's presence in their life. In this story, a Christian hermit heard a knock at the door of his hermitage. When he opened the door, he saw a mother and father and their young daughter. The parents apologized for intruding on the hermit's solitude but said they had come to ask him to pray over their daughter, whom, they said, as you can plainly see, an evil wizard has turned into a donkey. Yes, I see, said the hermit, and he invited them to come in. The hermit then asked the parents to sit off to one side, and he asked the little girl she was hungry and would like something to eat. When she said she would like that, the hermit talked to her as he prepared her meal. Then as she ate, he continued talking to her, asking her questions about things that mattered to her. When the parents saw the love with which the hermit prepared their daughter some food and the sincere affection in which he spoke to her, their eyes were opened. They suddenly realized that the wizard had not cast a spell on their daughter, turning her into a donkey. Rather, the wizard had cast a spell on them, leading them to believe that their daughter was a donkey. 
And seeing that their daughter was truly the little girl they loved, they were filled with joy and tearfully embraced her. As the parents left with their daughter, they expressed their gratitude for what had just happened. And their daughter was grateful as well. For it is hard being a little girl when your parents think you are a donkey. It is especially hard when you fall into the shame-based suffering that comes when you start to believe that you are indeed the donkey your parents believe you to be. The deep healing that little girl and her parents experienced in this story bears witness to the deep healing that I hope to explore in this book. May your reading of these reflections in a sincere and heartfelt manner help you to find your way yet further along the healing path which you have already embarked. As you continue on in this way, I hope that you will continue to discover in all sorts of unexpected ways that you are becoming a healing presence in an all too often traumatized and traumatizing world. By that I mean you will continue to be graced with realizations you are becoming someone in whose presence others are better able to experience the gift and the miracle of who they really are and are deep down called to be, so that they, in turn, can pass on the contagious energy of healing to others. Amen, so be it. But we tend not to see the deathless presence of God, nor do we tend to see the deathless presence of ourselves subsisting in God breath by breath, heartbeat by heartbeat. Jim, thank you so much for reading that gorgeous introduction. And I'd love to hear more about what we'll find in this lovely book. I heard you say in the introduction that it's a kind of teaching memoir. Yes. I hope what they'll find is that I share this um, intimate, mysterious place in my life in which the grace of God and suffering touch each other. That as they read, that it will help them access, become aware of that same mysterious place in them. That what I learned in the years that I sat with people in psychotherapy and spiritual direction, how universally intimate and personal this is, about this mysterious place is so hard to talk about. And uh, so I, I hope it'll help them find their way to that place and to, to grow in it and let it, that awareness deepen. And can you tell me about how this book came to be? Uh, some years ago, uh, Sounds True had me do a, uh, an audio set with Carolyn Mays called Transforming Trauma. And that was released and it's still out there. People can get that. And then later on, I got a grant from Fetzer Institute to, to do a much more uh, refined and expansive model of this contemplative dimensions of healing. Um, in Madison, Wisconsin, sponsored by the Mindfulness Training Program, Madison, Wisconsin, at Holy Wisdom Monastery. And uh, uh, that, those talks were recorded, and they're, and they're on the CAC website. You can go and hear those and so on. And uh, so then I decided to write a series of essays expanding on that further in writing. And I, I worked on those every day for a couple years, really. And it just didn't really quite click for me. Just wouldn't work for me. And then, uh, unexpectedly, then, when Maureen got sick, and I was sitting here next to her, uh, it just started rolling out of me, this kind of raw intimacy mingled with grace. And uh, so once it started, I just stayed that way for the whole book. I just wrote every day in that same space like that. And that's how it came to be. Tell me a little bit more about that writing process. So something started to flow through you. How did you, how did you capture it? What, what were you doing every day? What I do is uh, I write six hours a day. I get up at six or seven. I write six hours a day in the morning. And um, then in the evening at sunset, I said, look out at the ocean. They have what Marina used to call muffin hour. So I have a glass of wine in my may, and I write some more. And when I write, what I did was, uh, structure-wise, is I went back and I looked at each phase of my life, uh, starting at three years old, when the trauma began and the spiritual awakenings began, on how I experienced and understood that, and then into my adolescence, 
then into reading Merton, and then going to the monastery. And so each phase has its own lessons. And I, I tried to write it in a way that uh, carried it forward in an honest way. And I, just, and I limited it to really just saying enough about the suffering to be honest and vulnerable, just enough. And at the same time, to share just enough of the awakenings that stirred in me out of that vulnerability. And I just try to stay at that one level, like that one thread through my life and just stay there. And that's how I wrote. So when you read it, you don't get drawn too deep into the trauma because you feel this presence of God throughout the, throughout the book. Yeah, I, I try to be careful not to uh, go into too much detail of the trauma where it would overtake the book. Likewise, later, starting in the monastery, where I talk about mystical experiences, I try to say just enough to be honest about those awakenings, but not go into classical texts and so on. I try to say, keep it close to the bone, like to my own experience, because I think when people have these experiences of suffering and, uh, and, and grace, it's always intimate and subtle. You know, it's always something very close. It's hard to put words to. So I try to stay at that level to help readers, as they read it, find a closer proximity to that same mysterious place in themselves. You have had a lot of trauma in your life, Jim, and, and I wonder what it was like for you to reflect on those times in your life, of the times of terrible suffering. I think that um, when I was went to the monastery in this traumatized state, but I didn't know it because I dissociated it off, and was re-traumatized in the monastery and left. Got into the, my first marriage, which was very dysfunctional. I had more suffering in it. And when I met Maureen, and really at her insistence, I, I went into psychotherapy for about five years, really, for very intense therapy. And there it was very hard because I had to share at the feeling level. I had to experience, I had to, in the presence of someone with whom it was safe for me to pace myself, I had to share at the feeling level the pain and experience it in my body and walk through it and accept it and understand it and sift it out so that I could out internalize it and outgrow it. And that was hard. That was very hard. But I had, because I did that and then continued to do it through the years, I just continued. And being with people, trauma people in therapy, it helped me to do that too, to keep sifting that out and sifting it out. I'd come to a place where I could share the stories of trauma in the book. You know, I could feel the sadness, but I was at peace with the sadness. You know, I thought, been there, done that. I'm aware of that. I'm here now. And, and likewise, I try to be very honest in the book that when Maureen died, I was re-traumatized. It was like another wave of that. And I came out of it and realizing I've been here before. You know, I've been here before. And, and, and it has. It's become much more gentle um, and mysterious, really. So... That's how I experienced it when I was writing the sad parts. It's helpful to hear that for, for those of us who might have trauma in our own stories, that there's a way to process it before it's shared more publicly, a safer place to process it. Yes, I, I know they were very careful to clarify this in the online course I'm doing on mystical sobriety and trauma, that anyone who reads this who has been or is being traumatized, anyone who gets triggered with trauma, Anyone who gets lost in painful feelings and they can't find their way out, anyone, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, needs to be very careful. The book is essentially very consoling. Be, uh, safety comes first. Nothing happens without safety. And get the help that you need. And if it helps, just, just skip the painful parts. You, you can just skim read it. Like, just be true to yourself. Don't underestimate uh, or be naive about the power of unprocessed trauma. But know that the book is intended to become a, a venue for sifting that out, exploring it, and finding, for as painful as the trauma is, the abyss-like mercy of God sustaining you in the trauma is infinitely greater. And by gently leaning toward the trauma with inner clarity and peace, some of that presence of God can be felt like shining through the trauma, little by little by little. And so just be true to yourself. Be sensitive to that. Yeah. That's, that's a really hopeful, consoling message. Well, you also had times of joy, great joy in your life, like meeting Thomas Merton when he 
unexpectedly became your novice master or, may, or marrying Ma- Maureen, another joyful time. What, what was it like to reflect back on those times? You know, first with Thomas Merton, when I realized the trauma that I had gone through, and when I entered the gates of the monastery and lived in the silent cloistered monastery, uh, chanting the Psalms and this, it was like a miracle. It's just an absolute miracle. And then to be sitting with Thomas Merton, who I saw as a lineage holder of the mystical traditions, and have him guide me in this way. But I realized that all that light came out of darkness. I never forgot that, really. And then when I was re-traumatized in the monastery, which I go into in the book, uh, I fell back into the darkness again. I unraveled. And uh, I wandered around in that state for another number of years, actually. And then when I met Maureen, like the, the joy of that, I realized it also came out of darkness. And then I realized in the joy of Maureen when she died, it was another wave of darkness. And then as it's become more peaceful and intimate and mysterious, another wave of peace, where it's, it's more luminous and gracious and inclusive. And, and so that's what I mean by the bittersweet alchemy, the currents of divinity that flow through the bittersweet alchemy. And to see in the big picture the rise and the fall of these patterns and uh, how to uh, lean into the process and walk our walk. And, yeah. You've already mentioned that you also reflect on times of spiritual awakening. And I, I just wonder what it was like to look back at those times, uh, especially those very luminous times in the monastery, in the barn, and uh, in that period of time. I think this is always true, you know. It's like, I put it in different ways in the book, but it's like where it's a moment where God and I mutually disappeared as dualistically other than each other. And therefore, when, when I was graced with that, I was uh, stunned by it, just absolutely stunned by it. And, uh, and then I would go to Merton and, talk about it, he would help me understand it and walk with it. And so so that, that's what it was like uh, for me, just, I don't know, just so uh, unforeseeably amazing. You know? And then I was living in a life at the monastery where every detail of the life, the rule of St. Benedict written in the fifth century, was intended to invite, nurture, protect, and cultivate that which he calls the deifying light that breaks forth out of this path of humility, prayer. So I just, I just feel, so it radicalized me. I'm so grateful for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I still sense you're still a little bit stunned by it, that it happened in the I way am, it did. I, yeah. I am because I think for me it's, uh, it's ongoing in the, in the present tense. You know, it's an ongoing habituated thing. And it's like eventually you learn not to be so surprised by being perpetually surprised. You just get used to uh, the unfoldings of things, yeah. You've already talked about this a little bit, but this book, uh, the thread that runs through it, is the way that your life has given you this deep insight into how trauma and spirituality intersect and given you um, avenues to learn about that and express that and deepen in that. Can you talk about something that you've learned Here's one way I would put it, kind of at the heart of the book, I think. Uh, let's say we're going along through our days in ego consciousness. That is, we're going along through our, the hu- our own life, the experience of our human life and our passage through time with all of its details, complexities, and, and uh, hopefully moving toward maturity and overcoming weaknesses and all that, all that. Uh, and God wants us to have a healthy ego because if the ego isn't healthy, we suffer, we cause other people to suffer. So the, the medical professions and psychological professions of healing are to help people be restored to that basic health of the human experience. But the point is, at the heart of the book, is that our experience in ego consciousness breaks open in two directions. One, it breaks open in the realm of trauma, where we're flooded and we lose ourselves. We just utterly lose ourselves. And even though the traumatizing moment has passed, it can linger on within us in this traumatized state. And the other way it breaks open is, is the quickening of religious experience, mystical quickenings. 
and I give examples in the book of this, how simple those often are. In the midst of nature, the arms of the beloved, the quiet hour at day's end, uh, the pause between two lines of a poem, and, and so on. Was, they just kind of lean into it, and, and this mystical unit of deepening. What this book is about, the way I see it, is as, as we go along in ego consciousness, how, how the ways that the ego has been broken open in mystical awareness and the ways it's broken open in trauma, that up ahead of you, they meet and converge. And they're waiting for you at the convergent point. And a lot of the book is about that. To me, that'd be one way I would poetically put it. See, the, when they meet each other, it's, it's incandescent in a, in a way. And uh, for birth and death and gain and loss, the, uh, the alchemy of their intermingling, see, and how grace transforms us in that process. It's hard thing, it's not explainable, but it's trying to put words to that and how to uh, live in, in a kind of an habitual proximity to that realm. It's, uh, it's the healing path. I think that's the healing path for me. What stands out to me reading your story and then in my own experience was is how those two elements, the trauma and the, the spiritual depth, live outside of time. And so the, the psychological process, the medical process, kind of lives inside of time and, and can't fully heal what's outside of time. That's right. Notice, for example, in moments of spiritual awakening, whether you're sitting there uh, where the sun is setting, and you don't just notice in passing that it's setting, but you sit and you give yourself over to the setting sun giving itself over to you. You're not in sequential time. Likewise, the poet in the midst of writing the poem, or you and being absorbed in the cadence of the poet's voice, you're not in time. You're not in time. We're at an art museum in art. We're lying in silence. It's like a timeless, like Richard, or like deep time. Deep time. But likewise, in trauma, you're not in time either. When you're, when you're flooded and uh, overtaken, and we can withstand anything as long as the center holds. There's a place to face it. It gets very scary when the threatening thing finds a place from which you're trying to be present to it. And it's like being burned alive. You're just caught up in a traumatized state. And so time stops. Likewise, as you go through time, say you come out of the trauma and you go on, you're back in time again. But that in the timeless world of the unconscious, these realms of darkness and light live on within us. And so the book tries to see the interface of the eternality of the passage of time and the mystery of it all. That's one of the themes, I think, that run through the book. Yes. And just the way trauma lives on inside the body, like you say, in the in the realms of the unconscious, and pops up unexpectedly, like it did for you in your life. Yeah, and I and I think another thing is that if you go through this and you find the healing, and you come out it back into the you found your way out of the darkness into the light, you're very aware of how helpful it is to bring out with you what you learned in the darkness. It isn't like oh, I'm out of it now; it's over. I think I'll move on. But something was given to, not to romanticize it or that, that it wasn't terrible, because it was, but it wasn't just terrible. There was something there that kind of enriches the light that you live in. And that's the suffering that lives in your own heart and really in the heart of the world. It's, it's, it really is a capacity for empathy. And I think it's how Jesus walked this earth, how Jesus saw suffering out of this deep, divinized light but he saw the invincible preciousness of ourself in the brokenness that can overtake us. And so how can we be freed from being overtaken by that, by the experiential salvation? Yeah. And as you looked back on your life, did you feel like you were able to see things in a new way in this writing process? In a sense, no, because I think I had so, like, walked this walk, it was familiar. But another way, yes, I was surprised. I think the writing of the book, and I would often write it in a kind of a meditative state. I would just, uh, it's like the learning curve that'll go on to our last breath. You know? And I did learn. It, it, it really um, enriched, contextualized the insights 
in a way that gift, it was a gift for me to write this book. You know, I, I, I grew through it. And St. Gregory of Nyssa, he has this idea of glory unto glory, that this will go on forever, that after we die and cross over when we've been in heaven for a trillion, trillion years, and we finally got the hang of it. We know all the angels on a first-name basis, God will pull a lever and eternity begins all over again because there's no end to endlessness. See, the Buddhists speak of beginningless beginning, before beginningless beginning, beyond endless ends. And uh, you, you get that sense of things, I think, yeah. How did you select what parts of your life to put into the book? I was very careful to limit myself to two things. One, suffering. That's why it's not an autobiography. I left out most of my life. I don't go into, I need a lot of it. But I, I chose suffering, how I experienced and understood the suffering and the effect that it had on me. And I chose spiritual awakenings, how I experienced them, how I understood them, and how the awakenings and the suffering touched each other. <clears throat> and how sometimes the intensity of the suffering uh, eclipses the capacity to find the spiritual. You can't even find yourself. But how uh, in endlessly mysterious ways this the sovereignty of God's presence starts shining through the suffering, you know, enriches the path that leads from out of the darkness into the light with greater humility and gratitude. So I tried to limit myself to that, to the whole book. The book feels so intimate and unique for many reasons, and one of them is that you're not only looking back on your life and reflecting on the past, but you're also writing almost like journaling about Maureen's death in the present moment as you're, as you're writing. And it seems like Maureen's death graced you with a new way of approaching the book, and I'm, I'm just wondering what that moment was like for you. Yes, I think a lot of therapy is like this too. A lot of life is like this. That's why I love T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets too. Is that, that theme runs through the whole poem. Is a, I once did an intensive therapy with somebody, and part of the therapy was, it was really unconscious. I wasn't aware it was preparing me to write this book. It is to write your own memoir in the present tense at the feeling level. So you don't say it was, you write it as as if in the present tense as it was happening. And as you follow that path, you can watch the evolving understanding because you carry those past moments into a new awareness so you're able to see things in them at the time that you weren't able to see. And uh, our life is like that. Our life is like that. So I tried to write the book this way, you know, where the the past is reflected upon in the light of the present. And, and as a past, it's not past because everything real is eternal and lives inside of us. And so I tried to write that. And then to remind myself that this awareness that I wrote this, that I was in in this book, in the, in the years ahead, I'll be able to see things that I wrote about in the book that I wasn't able to see when I wrote the book. It's like very often, I love interviews with poets and how very often they themselves don't know what the poem's about. And they're kind of surprised by it. And this is why poetry is uh, evocative, like the parables of Jesus, like life, you know? And uh, this, it goes deeper and deeper into that. Even into our own stories. That's, yeah, that's exactly. amazing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And how our own story opens out upon everyone else's story. And that story opens out on God's story, who in Christ took on our story. That's why for a while I was thinking of writing the book, My Life, Our Life, God's Life. And it's this unfolding life. I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly, Jesus says. And the life he spoke of was the life that was at once God's and our own. And what is the path along which we come to realize that and live by it? And be healed from what hinders us from realizing that. Well, I think there'd be an appetite for that book if you do feel called <laughs> to write it. Uh, yeah. Jim, how did your knowledge of the mystics influence this book? Well, you know, I was in the monastery and in a silence and I was starting to have these inner quickenings of, of oneness. And, uh, and I was sitting with Merton, who I saw to be a lineage holder, a mystical lineage. 
and so it was with his guidance I started reading the mystics. The same mystics that were doing on the Turning to the Mystics podcast and the mystics that touched me. And I'll never for the first time, I, uh, I, I think I said this in John of the Cross, the very first time where I read the Ascent of Mount Carmel, John of the Cross. And uh, I walked out into the woods and I sat at the base of a tree and I started reading the first paragraph out loud. And there was this feeling that almost all of it was going over my head. But something was hitting me in my chest and my stomach. It was like music to me. And I realized that they were talking about what I was just beginning to realize. And they were offering trustworthy guidance in how to understand what was happening, how to cooperate with it, and how to be humble and aware of that I'm subject to self-deception. So when I found that there's a kind of a classical depth being intimately lived out in our life, and it's lived out unexpectedly in the midst of our wayward ways. You know, we, we fumble along in the midst of our fumbling. There's like graced encounters of a depth of presence. Thomas Merton once said, he believes that there are many people in the world who are being led to these deeper places, but they have no one to help them understand what's happening to them and offer guidance in it. So my sense of the podcast as a ministry kind of or help is to, to provide that. Yeah. You mentioned that when you first read The Mystics, it, it felt like music to you. And I very much feel that this book reads like poetry or feels like music washing over you. And I, uh, reminiscent of John of the Cross that you've shared with us. Yeah. And, and so do you feel the mystics helped you enter into that kind of realm of language? I do, because I, I feel sometimes to say if I'm speaking on John of the Cross in the podcast for this, it's hard to know where John of the Cross stops and I begin, you know, where Merton stops and I begin. But I also think this is true in contemplative spiritual direction, that a directee in direction, say this reading the cloud of unknowing, centering prayer, whatever, and they're trying in the presence of the director to put words to what's happening. See, it's hard to know the place where the words of the cloud of unknowing is being echoing in their very words, which is the point, really, that it kind of lives on in us. Yeah, I do feel that way. Yeah. And you talked about Thomas Merton being a lineage holder of this mystical lineage of Christianity. Do you see this book as part of that lineage? Yes, very much so. I, I would hope that, uh, just like I would hope that what I say, I should say this too, um, you know, and being a, uh, like how to be a contemplative clinician. There's a psychological task as a clinician to assess, diagnose, and treat psychological symptoms that embody suffering. And they need to be met at their own level, about defense mechanisms and tolerance for painful affect and, and, and so on. And then there's the spiritual, religious, spiritual, mystical level, which is real in its own right. And here I'm looking at the suffering from the vantage point of the mystical. And what I don't do, which is necessary in real life, is the integrative process of moving back and forth and back and forth till you start to see the ways they interface each other like this. So I do hope that everything I say here of the mystical is, is true to the, the mystical heritage, that it's in that voice. In the, it's in that voice. And, um, and I also hope that what I say of the spiritual, even the, uh, the psychological, even though I'm looking at it from a spiritual point of view, that it, that it rings true to the interior depth dimensions of the psychological. At least, at least that's my intention. Yeah. That's helpful to hear because I, I was going to ask you about your years of being a clinical psychologist and how that influenced the book. Uh, and it's really influenced your whole teaching ministry, hasn't it, that the psychological depth with the, with the um, intention of helping people at that level and the spiritual level? Yes, you know, when I got my doctorate uh, in clinical psychology and started my practice, uh, I, I was also leading retreats in uh, California near my doctoral program there in Pasadena. That's where Maureen came to hear me talk once. That's how we met one of those talks. And uh, because uh, when the word got out that I was starting a private practice, the people on the retreat started coming to me for therapy. So I had a full practice right away. 
even on an internship where I was still supervised. So all of a sudden, I was exposed. I think I saw maybe 25 people a week, maybe something like that. I saw a lot of people. All of a sudden, I was exposed to a lot of suffering stories. And, very, and, I, and so it took a while to get acclimated to all that. And I was deeply affected by it. I was just deeply affected by it. Like the, unrelent, like the unrelenting resiliency of the human spirit to rise above and work through painful places. And then I, it isn't just what I hope they learned in the therapy and our time together, but also the book's been very much enriched, this memoir, by what I learned from them. A, a lot, actually, yeah. Oh, that's lovely. That's beautiful. You've written other books, Jim. Was there something different about feeling called to write this one? Yes, there was. Uh, you know, when I wrote uh, Merton's Palace of Nowhere on Merton's insight into the true self beyond ego, uh, it took five years to write it, I think. I got up at five in the morning and wrote. And uh, it was a real grace for me. I could just feel... Uh, it was a real, you know, it was a, it was a deep grace for me to write like that, like it flowed through me. And then I wrote other things since. And I, I feel good about them. They were fine. I, I stand by each one of them. They were. But when I wrote the memoir, I feel this way, the way I felt about Merton's Palace of Nowhere. You know, I really felt it came bursting through my life. So they're almost Merton's Palace and uh, this memoir like bookends for my other writings, I just feel. Um, but in a similar way, I have to also say um, the, the, the Mystical Sobriety series, which I do this, what's the mystical dimension of each step? It has that same, uh, those recorded video talks have that same feeling for me. You know, it's that same, I don't know what it is, just deeply engaged uh, flow of something. So that's how I feel. I feel like the podcast sessions have that same flow too. Very much so. Yeah, very much so. When I And I feel it's a grace, especially with the pandemic and everything, to be able to teach from my home here. But it's very like the intimacy of the podcast. So it's very uh, heartfelt and deeply intimate that way. So, yeah, I would... I would and we got three or four bookends now. Lined up. <laughs> but the, uh, the podcast, it's, it's very much that way for yeah. me. The it's a gift, yeah. Uh, what are your hopes for people who read the book? I hope that it'll help them, a kind of a spiritual reading, to uh, invite them to kind of sit with these interior dimensions of themselves and, uh, and also to sit with the mystery of their own life, of birth and death, and to walk with the mystery of it and to it'll help them grow an experiential self. You know, Teresa of Avila in the interior castle, when she talks about these deepening mansions that lead into the seventh mystical mansion. And she said, each transition into the deeper place, the door like has three hinges on it. And one is a humility. The other one is prayer. And the third is experiential self-knowledge. And so that's what I would hope for, that there'd be like a, a prayerful, humble deepening of experiential self-knowledge to live and share with people. That would be my hope. Oh, that's beautiful. In the introduction, you suggested that people might read the book in the same attentive manner in which I'm writing it. Is, is there a way you could guide us in how to do that? Well, first of all, to your own self be true, just read it, you know, and uh, maybe that, that's enough. You know, gain something of it and sit with that. I never thought it might be like that. Another deeper level is in the margin. Anytime there's a sentence that strikes you, like I never quite saw it that way before, put a dot. If a sentence or a phrase really strikes you, put two dots. And if it really, really, really strikes you, put three dots and exclamation point. If there's something that befuddles you, like what's that mean? Like how can that be true? Put a question mark. And also, if there's something that just comes up against, like, I don't, I don't agree with that, so write the word no with a question mark. Like, why don't I? So that would be one way. Then the other way, this is how I suggest people read the mystics, too. Take a journal and go through the book where there are the dots and so on, whatever it is. And as you read a, a, a statement that struck you, 
in a box write how have I or how am I experiencing that? And the next box would be, uh, uh, what's it asking out of me? What's this awareness asking out of me? And the next box would be, how's that going with me in the living of my life? And so by journaling it out, that way you would internalize it. And uh, so to your own self be true. I mean, each person. I have these books here, all the mystics double-shelved. And for me, there are just certain books that uh, you just never get to the end of. You know, and you can almost randomly pull one off the shelf, like the Sermons of Meister Eckhart or something, and just open it to any page and read it out loud. And every every page is it. You know, every, like that's what I try to do in writing the book, like how to tell the truth one paragraph at a time, like that, and uh, just let it flow like that. So each person will take it as they take it. Mm-hmm. I like that idea of um, just reading it at least first and then working out how it might be a piece that you want to continue to work with because you do enter into the flow of it if if you read it like you say paragraph and it also slows you down at times because in each chapter you have some kind of prayer or spiritual practice and so it's got a lovely rhythm to it as well if you stick with the 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 rhythm you wrote it in i would say two things one is to really trust that when your awakening heart inclines you to pause, pause see, and move on. Don't go, just, it's like the gate of heaven opens, you walk right past it. Like, <laughs> like stay with it. And when you're, when you're ready to move on, move on. And another thing to say too, you know, I've had this experience that a lot of people I've talked with, where you, you read a book at a certain point and you say, I don't get it. You know, and years later you pick up the same book, knocks you over. So sometimes there's a providential timing of when you read something. Uh, and sometimes it's the first taste of something that you're, you're, you're inclined because you got a glimpse of it. And it's like a doorway to take it further and see, I wonder what this is about. And it's always good just to trust those inclinations, I think. Well, Jim, thank you so much for sharing with us in this deep way today. Um, I'm so honored to be able to uh, talk to you about this beautiful memoir. And uh, I'm sure the listeners of this podcast will be greatly blessed by this book. And I want to add one last thing, too, on that, though, so inclined. I want, if they go to uh, the Transforming Trauma audio set and then go to the more expanded version that I gave uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, at the end of that more expanded version, there is, uh, one, an outline of the approach but also a list of readings in the mystical traditions and in-depth psychology. And so uh, we're going to be posting this too on the website here at the end of this uh, series with Eckhart on, on where do we go from here on, on readings and resources and, and, you know, just follow the path. So anyway, I'm um, grateful for this exchange we just had, and I hope that it, it touches people and helps them in their own life. And they can also see how, what are the autobiographical foundations of the mystical path? Because each of these mystics lived a life, you know, and we're living a life. And so I think the memoir weaves in those autobiographical foundations of uh, the concreteness of it day by day, yeah, so. It really does, and invites us to, to know that it's in our own lives that we find that depth dimension that you found in yours. Yeah, and nowhere else. I mean, where else are you going to find it? Anyway, it's good. So good. Yeah. Beautiful. So the book is called The Healing Path, A Memoir and an Invitation, and the publisher is Orbis Books. And I hope a little later on to do an audio version, too, like I did here. Because a lot of people, they listen to things like that while they're walking and so on, you know, they... And so, uh, so anyway, that's how they can get it if they're so inclined to get the book. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Turning to the Mystics. You can find Jim's book, The Healing Path, A Memoir and Invitation, at the Center for Action and Contemplation's bookstore at cac.org forward slash healing path and wherever books are sold.
Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.